You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. The Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. But the best step you can take right now to be informed about national security law is to sign up for the annual conference, which is right around the corner. It will be happening November 1st and 2nd in Washington, D.C. To sign up, visit our website at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or call the ABA Service Center at 800-285-2221. That's 800-285-2221 to register over the phone. You can also find more information on our website about the panelists and the speakers. We'll be having a keynote address from Michael Chertoff, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, at the conference dinner on Thursday night. On today's podcast, we'll be listening to the audio from a live event called Sleepless in Cyberspace, Navigating the Threat Landscape, from Friday, September 28th that was hosted by the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force and co-sponsored by the Standing Committee. The speakers you hear will be Robert Litt, who is at Morrison and Forrester and is the former general counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, a senior fellow at the Arstrid Institute and a former guest on National Security Law Today, and Lucy Thompson, the founder and principal of Livingston PLLC. The moderator of the panel is Joshua Snavely, the dean of the Langston University School of Business. They'll be discussing the cyber threats that lawyers and business professionals need to be aware of. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to the podcast. At the end of the podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABANatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. What I thought we'd do is start off and have... Bob, give us sort of an overview of sort of the threat landscape as you see it. You um, certainly at general counsel at ODNI, now in the private sector, focused on advising private companies. So why don't you lay out for us as you see it the threat landscape? Sure, and I don't know exactly how detailed and you want to get in this. Uh, so stop me if I, if uh, I get too much into the weeds. But um, so. Um, as Josh said, I was the, the general counsel for the director of national intelligence, and every year uh, the, the DNI has a hearing before the House and Senate Intelligence and Armed Services Committees, um, which is called the Worldwide Threat Assessment Hearing. There's a classified and an unclassified version, but this is where the, the DNI basically gives his assessment of what do we need to be worried about for the next year, uh, and for the last eight or ten years, the number one issue in, in virtually every threat assessment hearing has been the cyber threat. Um, this past year, um, Dan Coates, who is currently the DNI, said, um, quote, the potential for surprise in the cyber realm will increase in the next year and beyond as billions more digital devices are connected with relatively little built-in security and both nation states and malign actors become more emboldened and better equipped in the use of increasingly widespread cyber toolkits. More recently, I I think this was the Aspen Security Forum, um, he said that the digital infrastructure that serves this country is literally under attack 
and the system is blinking red in the same way that it was before 9-11, which, which coming from an intelligence person, that's like a four alarm fire. Um, uh, the worldwide threat assessment went on to state that um, while Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea were the greatest cyber threats today, and in a minute I'll talk a little bit more about each of them, um, the number of countries with cyber attack capabilities has grown from only two or three a decade ago to over 30 today, 30 or more countries that have the ability to conduct cyber attacks. And he, he further went on to emphasize that the threat not only comes from hostile nations, but also from terrorist groups and transnational criminal organizations. And that one of the trends that we're seeing now is that the nation states and the, and the um, non-state organizations are working together, uh, or, or at least in parallel, on hacking activity. Um, finally, the DNI statement went on to note that malware is widely available for purchase on the dark web, uh, and that the line between criminal and nation state activity will become increasingly blurred as states view cyber criminal tools as a relatively inexpensive and deniable means to enable their operations. Um, just, just this week, um, there have been a couple of, of relevant stories. There's a story, I think, this morning about how the Port of San Diego was subject to a ransomware attack. Um, there's another, there was another story that I saw online uh, that some researchers have identified a new technique that a Russian, uh, the, the, the famous Russian uh, hacking organization, Fancy Bear, has used, which apparently uh, is, is uh, I don't purport to understand the technicalities, but if I read the article correctly, they're saying that they've now developed something that can sit in your computers, and even if you try to wipe everything clean, it comes back. Um, um, so um, it's a it's a, a major problem for both government and, and private entities. Um, I said I'd talk a little bit more about the sort of four leading um, uh, threats. Um, uh, North Korea, um, as you probably all know, was responsible for a major attack on Sony Entertainment um, as retaliation for the um, Stoner movie. Uh, the interview. Parenthetically, my, my partner, John Carlin, who uh, at the time was Assistant Attorney General for the National Division, National Security Division, said that uh, he is, is certain that this will be the only time in his career that he sits in the Situation Room with the President and watches a stoner movie. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, um, Did you have to brief General Clapper on this? No, no, I, I did not, uh, fortunately. Really? Um, Bad movie. <laughs> Um, w whether he watched the movie or not, uh, I, I'm not in a position to say. I don't have the clearance for that. Um, but, uh, and, and the Sony attack uh, was a combination of uh, destructive uh, activity, which destroyed uh, thousands of Sony computers, but also theft and release of, of extremely damaging and embarrassing information about Sony. Um, last year, um, there was a uh, ransomware attack called WannaCry that's been attributed to North Korea. It affected over 200,000 computers in 150 countries, um, including, for example, the British National Health Service. Um, so um, North Korea is, is extremely active and extremely hostile in cyberspace. Um, Russia has been accused of, of several hacks on US computers in the last couple of years. Um, obviously, everybody here is familiar with the attacks on uh, 
US election infrastructure. Um, but there are also numerous other attacks attributed to Russia, uh, including uh, another ransomware attack called NotPetya that apparently began as a targeted attack by Russia on Ukraine and then spread around the world, uh, causing billions of dollars of damage. And I know Lucy wants to talk a little bit about another Russia thing. I'll, I'll talk about the, <coughs> the other countries first, uh, if I can find my notes, um, and then uh, turn it back to her. Um, Um, yes, uh, China, um, China was responsible for the OPM hack um, that stole uh, o over 20 million uh, security files of, of government personnel, um, uh, which is interesting because uh, nobody thinks they stole that information to weaponize it or to release it, but rather as part of a, uh, their sort of national security effort to try to accumulate a huge amount of personal data uh, and run uh, big data analytics against it um, to, uh, for example, help identify U.S. intelligence agents. You, you might figure that if they see somebody who uh, is using his credit card a lot in the vicinity of Langley, Virginia, that might lead them to suspect that this person is a CIA agent. Uh, finally, Iran has been extremely active in recent years in the cyberspace. Um, in 2016, um, hackers who were associated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard were indicted in this country for uh, both a distributed denial of service attacks on major U.S. financial institutions, but also for trying to get control of a dam uh, in Rye, New York. Um, fortunately, they weren't successful in that, and it, it was a small dam, but it's an extremely troubling, uh, uh, troubling development. Um, and this, uh, this, I think, plays into what Lucy will be talking about in a minute. Um, and just uh, more recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Iranians uh, were developing ransomware software. So um, this is a, a hugely significant problem. Um, we can talk a little bit more about the, the, the types of threats uh, later on. Um, but the overall threat landscape is one in which um, the offense is clearly ahead of the defense um, and sort of the the big picture is uh, that nobody can protect themselves against any cyber attack. Um, uh, Bob Mueller, the former director of the FBI, whose name may be familiar to you in another context, um, is famous for having said that there are two types of com companies in the world, uh, those that have been hacked and those that don't know yet that they've been hacked. Um, and uh, this, is a, this is a trend that's going to continue. Um, and. The, the kind of bottom line for companies seeking to defend themselves is they need not only to try to prevent hackers, but they need to be able to identify intrusions when they occur, they need to be able to contain them when they occur, and they need to have response plans in, in place to, to mitigate when they happen. Thanks, Bob. I, so I want to tee up a question for you for later, and then I'll shift to Paul to talk about some more threats. But so yesterday we met with Suzanne Spaulding, former undersecretary at DHS, and we, we started a discussion about consequence management, sort of companies thinking through, because when they hear a picture like this, often that's overwhelming. Right. And it's, you know, how, do I, how can I prepare for North Korea or um, China? And really, you can't. But So how, how does a company, this is the question for later, how, how does a company think through and prioritizing both the threats 
and their consequence business continuity. So if you would think about that. Sure. So um, I want to shift to Paul and have you talk, I guess, on that threat landscape, sort of thinking about those APTs, the um, advanced persistent threats and, and what that landscape looks like. Well, um, you know, the way Bob characterizes the, the, the threat landscape is, I, I, I won't say the traditional way because we don't have any traditions in cyberspace yet, but you know, thinking of it as, as, a, as a nation state problem uh, principally, and I, I think that as a first approximation for the threat landscape today, that's accurate. Uh, the most significant threats are nation states. For corporations and businesses, I think the threat landscape is more variegated and less homogeneous, uh, which is to say that uh, unless, uh, I mean, some of the, some of the corporations that have been the subject of nation-state activity have actually been accidental victims, <coughs> like, like in the, in the NotPetya case. Uh, others more deliberate, like in the case of Sony. Um, so uh, my first uh, kind of approximation for how uh, one should think about threats is that the scope and scale of the threat stream is expanding. Uh, today, when we say advanced persistent threats, that is threat streams that are by advanced actors and people who are persistent and go after targets uh, over a long and extended period of time, as opposed to people who are threats of opportunity, if you will, and they just pick any vulnerability. That is pretty much limited to nation states and some of the more sophisticated non-state actors. That's going to change on a time horizon of, in my judgment, uh, three to eight years. And we will soon have a, uh, a world in which the advanced persistent threat capabilities that are now unique to, say, the Russian uh, intelligence services uh, become far more readily available. Uh, we are essentially democratizing, if you will, uh, information operations and warfare. And, and if the capabilities will trend down first to organize groups uh, you know, of the kind of Al-Qaeda-ish types, then to individual actors even, or small irrational groups of actors. Uh, so the first thing that I think this tells me is that uh, one of the critical components for good assessment of the threat uh, environment now is threat intelligence, good threat intelligence work. Knowing who your attackers are, what their motivations are, and therefore what their tactics are. We, have, we live in a world in which, you know, if it's a Russian criminal gang, they're after money, and their group of tactics is, is a bucket of of capabilities like over here. If it's China, they're after uh, economic intelligence and intellectual property, and their group of capabilities and their methodologies are different. Uh, and likewise, if your company is in the unfortunate circumstance of being targeted by uh, hacking activists 
who have a political motivation of some form or another. Uh, they, uh, they, they operate differently. They have different objectives, uh, different methodologies, uh, and different capabilities. So uh, when we talk about the threat stream, uh, my first message is that it is becoming substantially and significantly more uh, diversified, if you will. And in this case, diversity is not a virtue uh, because it's much easier to defend against a single known threat than against a multiplicity of, of, of different and, I should add, changing threats. Um, the second piece of uh, the problem uh, that is also one of a changing nature is that the uh, attack surface, the vulnerability surface of an institution is also expanding in ways that are uh, uh, as yet un, uninternalized by organizations. What do I mean by that? Ah, you know, if you go back 10 years, the uh, attack surface was uh, an enterprise service that were, that were institutional repositories of information, uh, much like uh, the OPM servers that, that China uh, penetrated a few years ago. And that was it. Um, you know, I mean, uh, that's an extreme statement, but that was the principal uh, objective that was the target of what uh, your adversary would be looking at. Today, uh, we see at least three trends that are changing that attack surface um, at, at a pace that is beyond my comprehension, really, at this point. Uh, the first is, uh, and Bob mentioned this as a brief aside and something that the DNI said, the Internet of Things. Literally every gizmo and gadget that you have is uh, now uh, a vulnerability point because they're all connected to the network in one way or another. The elevator we came up in on, probably uh, the car that you came here or you came in Uber, right? He's, he's connected in at least three different ways, uh, both with GPS and probably the, the OnStar in his car and who knows how many other things. I'm su surprised. I think that probably the refrigerator in the corner is not yet connected. But, but uh, increasingly people do, and mostly uh, uh, connected without uh, adequate security, and in many instances without any security at all. Um, well, can I just interrupt here with a little anecdote about the Internet of Things, which is, is timely because it, it relates to NSA. Um, a, a couple of years ago when I was still in the government, um, the um, security people at NSA did a periodic, one of their periodic sweeps of the director's office um, and they discovered a, an emitter. Something was emitting signals from inside the office of the director of the National Security Agency. So this, needless to say, created a bit of panic, and they searched around and discovered that it was the new dishwasher that had been installed in his kitchen that was like all good dishwashers are these days, Wi-Fi enabled um, and, and transmitting out. So they, they got a new dishwasher. Are you serious? Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay, so so that makes my point in a way that I cannot possibly top. Um, that so that's purpose. So item two on um, on uh, my attack surface is changing is uh, the bring your own device, right? When uh, I started at, in the government, you know, and, and the first thing they did was they issued me my own BlackBerry. And so the government controlled my devices and had a responsibility for its security. 
and uh, they issued me my own laptop, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Today, uh, last I saw, about 80% of the companies uh, have some form of accommodationist policy where you can bring your own, uh, you can bring your own uh, cell phone and attach it to the computer network. You, some even let you bring your own, your own laptop and, and, and log in. So each of these new devices is, of course, a vulnerability point and more, more to the point for corporate uh, threat and vulnerability assessment, it's one that's outside of your control or outside your immediate control. You can have policies and you can try and push down security into the devices of, uh, of your employees, but that's a big challenge. So uh, not only is your elevator uh, a threat to your company, but each of your employees who walks in the door is probably carrying at least two, you know, the Fitbit and the, and the Wi-Fi, and maybe as many as four or six new threat vectors that have come onto your property and then leave at the end of the day or get left behind. Um, so that's uh, the, a mutation. And then the third mutation uh, that is, uh, again, changing the threat vector, the uh, attack surface, this one may be an improvement, but maybe not, unlike the others, which are unalloyed bads for security. Uh, so unalloyed goods, probably for efficiency. Uh, this one is, is, is uh, the move to, to cloud systems, fog systems, uh, where you offload your data, you offload your, um, your, your uh, software as service, your devices service, uh, your data as service, and, and it's now all in somebody else's hands, and again, huge efficiency upticks, right? We're getting, you know, we're being provided with um, uh, just-in-time provisioning of, of, of uh, information services in real time, and that's great. And maybe it's even a benefit because maybe Amazon Web Services actually does it better than you do. Uh, and so that's good, uh, especially if you're a smaller company. Right? The, relying on that is probably your best cheap option. Jesus, sorry, guys. <laughs> unknown, too. Yeah. Um, they heard what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, un, uh, your, best, uh, your, your best thing. But at the same time, you are no longer in control of your own uh, safety and security. And, and that's a, a really significant change. And it's actually, in many ways, a, a, a return the original architecture of most uh, information systems, yeah. when I started back in the 70s, had a uh, system administrator. And he was responsible for everything. And you had to ask his permission to use the computer. And um, if he granted it to you, you uh, uh, he would run your program. But he did all the security. And you were, you were his serf, if you will. Then we got to the point where I was responsible for everything on my own laptop. And I took my own responsibility. And I feel good about myself, but a lot of people aren't as good. And now we're coming full circle, and because most of my stuff is now in the cloud, my secure, the security of my data is dependent on Dropbox. Uh, right? The security of my programming is dependent upon Amazon. And I don't necessarily feel comfortable about that, because now my attack surface, my personal attack surface, has expanded immensely. And I'll end there. It's a good overview, Paul, and I, you also sort of started to dive into, we want to get a little more specific on some of these threats. I may give you some homework, though. I just got a New York Times alert that Facebook... I was just going to say. Yeah, what? Just 
revealed that uh, 50 million users' data was compromised. Oh, goody. So, wow. Was mine? Um, probably. So, Yours has gone to OPM. So, yeah, well, I lost it years ago. So let, let's dive into a little bit more um, of some specific landscape threats. And I know, Lucy, I think it was yesterday, you were at um, a MITRE conference. And if you aren't familiar with MITRE's framework and some of the things they do, I highly recommend you um, look at those. But maybe you can talk about what you learned there. And um, one of the first sort of deeper dive areas we want to go into, which I know some of my Brown colleagues are focused on, is social engineering and phishing um, and some of that. So why don't you open that up? Great. Well, um, MITRE sponsors a quarterly conference on supply chain risk. So yesterday and the day before was this meeting of uh, many industry uh, leaders and government officials. Um, one of the most fascinating briefings was by DHS about the Russian compromises of critical infrastructure. And Holly has provided um, for everybody copies of a handout. Um, did you get that alert? Um, TA 18-074. If you don't um, have it, we'll send it out. It's out, okay. So I, I took this alert and excerpted it for you because it's important, I think, to understand how data breaches unfold. and. They're pretty um, standard techniques that hackers use. I actually went to engineering school at RPI after I finished work at the Justice Department. And I also took some hacking classes where they gave us all the hacking tools to use during the semester. Well, during that time, I was working as a consultant to DHS, and I worked with some enterprise architects. To analyze all the breaches of that time period, they were some of the early breaches, but they were massive. So I wrote a book that was published by the American Bar Association called Data Breach and Encryption Handbook. And in this book, we actually drew pictures of all the breaches. There were about 10 of them. And we were able to diagram, and you can't see these pictures, but Visually, we were able to show the readers how these breaches unfold. And even though, as everybody says, the breaches are very complicated and it's hard to defend against them, but I think the first step is understanding how a breach occurs. So this alert that DHS put out is a detailed analysis of the Russian um, compromise of a number of different critical infrastructure sector organizations in the energy, nuclear, commercial facilities, water, aviation, and critical manufacturing. And the important thing is that the objective of these Russian hackers is to cause catastrophic harm in the US or really around the world. So um, the objectives that Bob and Paul were talking about some of, the, some of the hackers want to steal money or they want to get our OPM data for analytics, but this is actually to bring down critical sectors of the country. And the cyber physical systems that run these systems, like the dam that Bob was talking about in Rye, New York, that was compromised, the hackers actually took control of that dam. And if they'd been able to, they could have actually um, opened the sluices and flooded Westchester County. 
So um, I'm not going to go through all the details, but the important thing here is to look at the different um, the sequence of events that the Russians used, because every hack actually follows this type of structure. And once you understand it, when I talk to most people who aren't cyber experts, you talk about a breach, and then their eyes glaze over. Because a breach is just something that's very amorphous. And you all will be the cyber experts that will be teaching all your clients how these breaches occur and how to defend against them. So the first point that DHS made was that the Russians selected two types of targets. One was for staging the breach, and the other one was actual intended targets, they called them, that were the focus of their attack. And these staging targets were third-party trusted suppliers to the intended targets who have weak security. So they were like the entry point. And then the intended targets were the, um, the actual um, focus of the breach. And then um, the, they used spear phishing attacks, which is uh, social engineering, and then a number of different approaches. Um, so these stages, you can read about them. But reconnaissance is the first one. Hackers always use hacker tools, which you can actually get yourself and download from the internet. And you can scan everybody's websites, and you can find all sorts of unsecured um, software of companies. And one of my projects and one of my courses was to actually do a report on a company that we scanned and um, planned to, to breach. Um, so it's easy to do. So th and they use public information for this, and they look to see what kind of information can be used to figure out what's the operating system, what are all the different software that's used. Um, the next one, the stage two is called weaponization, where they use spear phishing attacks. And we all know that spear phishing is the most frequently used way to gain entry to a company. And this wasn't spear phishing <laughs> almost exclusively what was used in the DNC? Oh, um, yeah. Act. So yeah, in fact, John Podesta actually received a spear phishing email that said, we want you to update your username and password. And apparently, he consulted with some people in his organization. They said, oh, fine, go ahead. So he put in his name and password. And in a congressional hearing, they asked him, how did it feel to be the person that actually gave away his password to the hackers? And he didn't have a good answer for that. <laughs> so how, is there anybody here who has not received a spear phishing email? Didn't think so. We're going to end this episode here. If you'd like to hear the rest of the Sleepless in Cyberspace event, please visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or visit the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force page, AmBar.org slash Cyber. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Tune in again soon for our next episode, or you can see us at the annual conference on November 1st and 2nd in Washington, D.C. Registration information available at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity.
Listening to a podcast is informative, so keep listening. But social networking isn't really networking, so we hope to see you at the conference. In the meantime, check us out online, follow us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or on Facebook. And from all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.